this, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. Welcome to the award-winning Interest in Health and Safety podcast, making health and safety as important as everything else we do in business. And now your host, health and safety specialist, mentor and speaker, Colin Nottage. Hi there, Colin Nottage here and welcome to the Interest in Health and Safety podcast. Today I've got the absolute pleasure of being joined by Tanya Hewitt. Um, Tanya is a Canadian, um, descent, was born in... um, um, I think the Ottawa area, I think it's where she's uh, where she's from. I may be totally wrong there. Um, she's been in the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission for a number of years and has recently set up her own uh, consultancy beyond safety compliance. Um, Tanya's real sort of passion, I suppose, is um, human and organisational performance. And we explore that, uh, that quite a little bit um, over, the next, uh, over the next hour. Anyway, welcome to Tanya. Tanya, thank you ever so much for taking some time to come and to come and chat with us today. I really appreciate. Well, it. I'm delighted, Colin. It's a, the pleasure's all mine. <laughs> um, would you would you be able to just give us a little bit of um background about your about yourself, about you know your, your you know your history, about how you got into health and safety, and sort of what you're doing now? Okay, so I have um, two degrees in physics, which probably don't seem to be terribly health and safety related. Hmm. Um, But after doing the second degree, I was very encouraged to go on and do the next degree, um, that being a doctorate. And um, I had opportunities to do that, but I I turned them down simply because I had the fortunate opportunity um, during my undergrad uh, to work with a whole host of postdocs in a very highly intensive research environment. Mm-hmm. And um, I realized that a whole bunch of people in the, in that environment hadn't really considered what they wanted to do. It was more of just, oh, well, this is the next step kind of, you know, a transactional kind of approach to their life, really. Mm-hmm. But after postdoc, like, you know, you really have to figure out what you're going to do. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and there wasn't, the, the choices start to become very narrow the higher you go. And um, because at that time, you know, some of them had engaged in relationships. And then if they were going to actually pursue a career in that very narrow area of study, um, you know, they have to live on different continents, as a couple, and you know, this starts to really interfere with um, fundamental values in in life. And I started to think, hmm, this is this is fascinating to see before I encounter that. <laughs> and gotcha. and I and I realized when I was uh, approached with the possibility of doing a doctorate in medical physics that I didn't love the subject enough. Okay. To, and I can remember the the physician who had, uh, you know, he was a mentor during my master's and he had said to me, well, why, why are you turning this down? Like, I, I don't understand. And I told him what I just said to you, like, I, I, I can just feel that I don't love this enough. I don't think, you know, this is, this is something I really would feel passionate about if were I to pursue it. Mm-hmm. And he looked at me as though I, you know, just came from the moon. He said, my grandfather was a doctor. My dad was a doctor. I'm a doctor. Like I, 
Mm-hmm. I've never heard like what? <laughs> and so, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, well, good for you, but uh, you know, good luck because you know, it's uh, you know, if people um, kind of just go through their lives not reflecting on what it is that is important to them, they can find themselves into situations where they start questioning, oh, what is this all for? What am I doing? What? you know, why am I even here kind of stuff? Whereas Mm -hmm. people who are more purposeful about their decisions might not be quite as struck with a midlife crisis. Mm. So that's, uh, that's really, it's really interesting you say that. I mean, because, um, you know, I can really relate to that when I'm, you know, when I was quite, uh, when I was quite young, I, um, I, I left, I did, I did maths and physics at A level and, um, and I came out and, um, and I just went to work in a, in a, in a pretty, to dead end. I didn't go on to university straight away. I went into a pretty dead end job um, for a big company, but I uh, wasn't doing anything that was really exciting me. Yeah, you know, all my friends were away at university, and they were saying what a fantastic time they were having and how much fun. And I thought I've got to do some of this. I've got to. I've got to get. I've got to go and do something that I actually enjoy rather than just just trudging along. And uh, but I was a little bit limited because uh, because my my A levels weren't weren't particularly good grades. <laughs> so uh, I I can say I might have said this before on here. I, I passed my A levels with ease. Um, I got two of them, two E's. Um, so, yeah, but, uh, but the thing is, is, um, you know, the, the, the thing for me is, is, is once I got to university, I mean, I did something that I, I do nothing about quarrying, you know, I knew nothing about it, but, ah, oh, what an exciting, what, a, what an exciting career it became, you know, and has been, you know, and I've had 30 odd years in the quarrying industry, you know, so, so sometimes you just got to go and you've got to go and do something. So, so what did you do then? You know, you didn't, you didn't go to, you know, to the, in, in the course that you were expected to do. So what did you do? Uh, so then I went and, and worked uh, for a while. Um, I, and that's where perhaps the, the health and safety uh, come, comes in. Not that I, I have never identified myself as a, as a health and safety practitioner. Okay. Like I can't, I can't do confined space training or ladder safety. Like that's not my, my thing at all. Um, uh, so I had uh, worked as a regulator um, for 10 years, um, but in, in so doing, I had realized that I had uh, a desire to learn, and that was driving me hugely. And so there were local talks that were going on. And I attended these local talks. They were typically at lunchtime. And um, one of these uh, was run by the System Safety Society. And uh, then I learned that the the International System Safety Society um, was holding their annual conference in Canada, which they never did. It was always in the States and the States is as international as the UK is, you know, for the, for the federal government. Like, you know, it -hmm. it doesn't, if you're uh, crossing a border, there's a lot of paperwork to (laughs) to go through. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, I wanted to take advantage of this opportunity to go to the system safety society talk, uh, which was held in Vancouver. And that's, that was a pivotal change for me because there I saw a woman whose name is Kathy Fox. She uh, was known in the system safety society community in part because the system safety society community 
was uh, attended by a lot of people from NAV Canada. They are the privatized air transport controller operation in in Canada, and they have a, a headquarters here in Ottawa. And a lot of those people came to the System Safety Society talks. And Kathy Fox, being a former air traffic controller, um, came to um, lead that organization at the time that it was privatized. So uh, it was uh, probably messy and, you know, all the, what you would expect going from a government-run organization to a crown corporation or privatized as it is today, maybe. I, so I don't quote me on that. I don't exactly know the status of NAV Canada, but it's right. not a it's not a government department anymore for sure. Okay. And, and that was done under Kathy Fox's leadership. And I thought, wow, okay. So like, a she's a woman like that. That was stun stunning to me that you know this whole thing was done uh, by a female. But then I went to the System Safety Society conference in Vancouver, and she was one of the keynote speakers not because of that experience, but because she was getting her master's in, in safety from Lund University under Sydney Decker. Right. And I'm like, okay, wait a minute, whoa. Okay, you've just broken my paradigm of how this is supposed to work. Mm -hmm. Because she had a career, like a very successful career, and now she's getting her master's you know, when she's in her, well, I don't know, I don't know how old she was, but certainly, you know, beyond what most people get their masters in, you mm -hmm. know, like, mm -hmm. and so that a was paradigm shifting for me. So you can go to school later in life, formal school, and B, she had a reading list that she put on a slide that set the course for my life thereafter. And I can remember um reading some of that material um and you know I, I i quote this story to many that i can it could it, it could have been yesterday i was on public transit i can remember where the bus was when i realized this and i was reading a paper by sydney decker and i had tears running down my cheeks and um in part because I was starting to realize that the high paid job that I had was making the world worse. And the cognitive dissonance that I had experienced was so strong that I was crying on public transit. And I, and I didn't even realize I was, you know, doing so until, until I did. <laughs> but, and that's when I realized, okay, this is something that I could probably study. You know, mm -hmm. this is something that I love enough. This is where I could go back to that doctor in uh, my master's program and say, this is what I, I care about. This is what I'm passionate about. Mm. So that's, that's kind of my story. <laughs> oh, fantastic. So, so what did you do then? Did you, did you go, have you, did you go then and study then? I mean, what, what's. Um, I did. Yes. Yeah. So then I took educational leave and I, um, studied, I square pegged it because at the time, um, you know, I did, I, I do have children and a, and a husband who has a good job and, you know, the, and the house and the community and everything. And I thought, you know, there's gotta be a way to do this. Cause I couldn't go to Lund university because 
my employer would not, I knew my employer would not pay for my education. And that's the only way you could get the Lund University thing to work. Mm -hmm. And I knew that that wasn't going to happen. So um, I had to figure out something else. And um, so the something else that I figured out was to find, there are two universities in my town. And by gosh, there's got to be a way to make this work. So that's, <laughs> that was the attitude that I took. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I called it square pegging it the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, it, it was it was unreal tough at, but uh, through the grace of uh, a lot of online platforms, like Coursera was um, foundational. I would I would equip my PhD. I'm I'm sure of it. If not for a Coursera, so mm-hmm. you know I was able to do a lot of self motivated learning through uh, through that platform that allowed me to be able to um, finish the the doctorate as I I had done it. But at, at any rate, so the doctorate is in population health, which is very interesting now because um, a lot of what we're experiencing globally is stuff that I learned in my program. So that's kind of interesting on its own. Mm -hmm. Um, but what I was truly interested in was, um, safety science. And, uh, what I studied was incident reporting. Okay. That's, um, I mean, it's, it's lovely to hear, you know, you know, what you say there about, you know, you can never, you can never be too old to learn. And I think that's 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 one of the things that that I've definitely taken. I mean, I'm in my fifties now, and I'm learning all the time. And it's uh, and it's just and it's just a, a, a fantastic. It just makes you such a better person, you know, by by just 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 opening up your your your, um, your, your blinkers a little bit, and uh, you know, and 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 allowing allowing stuff to stuff to flow over you. Really, I mean, that's that's how I like to yeah. explain it. But you know, but it's it's, it's absolutely great. So. So when you so you know talk talk to me a bit more then about the, the sort of the incident side of things then what did you you know what what what, what do you what have you did you do with that then? So um, I I was uh, re- the reason why I looked at incident reporting was because at my former workplace, um, notwithstanding the job of um, compliance that I was you know expected to do, um, I was far more fascinated by a division called the human and organizational performance division. Mm -hmm. And I was hanging out with them a lot. And one of them said, you know, Tanya, if you love this stuff this much, maybe you should think about studying it. And that's what got me to, you know, think about, okay, maybe I should study it then. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. and, and it was incident reporting and, um, and I chose to look at um, incident reporting in healthcare because it seemed to me as though healthcare um, was one of the areas of uh, more opportunity than some of the other areas that I had um, been exposed to mm-hmm. aviation, mm-hmm. nuclear power, that kind of thing. Mm. I've, read, um, I've read a book um, uh, by Matthew Syed called Black Box Thinking. Which talks a lot about uh, about health, the healthcare, you know, and, and compares yes. it, I suppose, to the to the, uh, the to the airline industry, you know, and some of the things that that isn't done in healthcare that maybe that maybe should be. Right. What what did, sort of things did you what sort of things did you find then? What were your you know what what did, when you were studying this then? What were the what were your findings? 
So, I mean, overall, my main takeaway that I've been telling people um, that I kind of uh, reflected on after I finished the whole study is that if you are wanting to set up an incident reporting system, it's, it's so easy to get it wrong mm-hmm. if you don't do your homework. Mm. So you really, really want to understand what you're getting into before getting into it. Mm-hmm. Because you can make things worse. This is one of the things where you can actually make things worse by doing it um, than, than not doing it. I mean, I, it, it was funny, um, just a little uh, talking about learning all the time. We're in conference season right now. I've been on all sorts of talks and things. And just last week, Stephen Shorrock had said, um, you know, to people going down a, a safety two type um, approach, he 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 emphasized this you can make things worse mm. if you don't know what you're doing so yeah. it's best yeah this isn't really one of those um you know try and fail and just learn as you go kind of things like you really want to be able to learn from what others have done and see what you can do for your context but mm. don't just go out there and knee jerk things mm. because you can get it wrong and and one of the ways that I uh, have said is is a is a good way to think about this. When I looked at incident reporting, I bought I I parsed it into three boxes. So one box is collecting the information, and that's where a whole lot of effort is placed. Mm-hmm. But another box is analyzing that information, and the third box is learning from that information. Mm-hmm. I have said, build the thing backwards. So everybody starts with, you know, the interface and how to make it psychologically safe for people to report and how to, you know, get all the categories aligned. And leave that to the end. Start with learning. What are you going to do with the information you get? And start envisioning the type of information that you could get start playing some thought experiments doing some some safe to these are the safe to fail experiments that you can do and start talking about how are you going to treat the information when it comes in think about this before you even announce that you might be going down this road because maybe maybe you'll get information like we're not structured properly you know, we don't have, we're all siloed. We don't have the right, we don't have the right infrastructure organizationally to be able to operate as a business. Well, what are you going to do with that? I mean, like, you know, you better be ready for, for the type of information you could get. You know, what, what happens if you do get that, that our senior leadership is, is all corrupt? Mm. What are you going to do with that? Do you just ignore it because that's a disgruntled employee? Like, what, what are you going to do? Like, you'd have to figure out how you're going to handle this type of information and be very, very clear about how the information is handled once you, and of course these can change, but, but it's not as though you don't, you don't figure it out as you go. You try to have a way to communicate how you're going to treat the information before you roll out the way that you're going to collect the information. 
so that people are assured when they report something, it's not going to go into a black hole, which is the, the by and large big problem with incident reporting systems that they just, you know, nobody's going to listen to me anyway. I mean, it doesn't really matter what I put in there. And, you know, it's, I think that's a, that's a really, it's a really valid point you've raised there. And, um, you know, the, there are many, many businesses that I've worked with who have got, who have, have got, um, who have got processes for reporting that, that just, that just aren't used because, yeah. because the people in the business don't believe in it. They don't believe that it's actually going to make a difference. So what and is the point? That you just, you just hit on the key point. Mm -hmm. Because what an incident reporting system essentially does is give workers a voice. Mm. And what is this whole safety differently movement doing, if not, but giving workers a voice? Mm. Incident reporting systems at its core are to allow workers to have a voice. Mm. And if you abuse that and you shut that down by ignoring them, by trivializing it, by doing whatever you um, are maybe are not intentionally doing. But as an organization, the messaging that you're giving to the to the people who are using the using the reporting system is, we don't want to hear it. We don't, you know, we don't listen to. We don't. We don't value your input. That is, it's worse than doing nothing because mm. it then sets up cynicism. It demoralizes the people who have invested their will and energy in trusting the system mm -hmm. to then realize, well, why did I, why, why did I trust the system in the first place? Why was I so stupid to believe that they'd actually listen to me? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like that's what happens. Yeah. And and then, and then what happens is, is you know, they, they create this environment where where people get disgruntled, and then and then when something happens, and you know, and and, and say maybe a maybe a check wasn't made on a machine, um, you know, because you know it wasn't filled at the box, you know, the the checklist wasn't completed correctly or whatever it was. That individual who's been disgruntled because nobody listened is then criticised for not bringing it up. Yeah. But nobody was listening anyway. Yes. <laughs> you know, yeah, and, and people right. people only start listening when when proverbially the the, the shit's hit the fan. You yeah. know. And that's and that's that's the real tragedy of this whole thing because mm. you know, again, incident reporting systems at its core are to allow workers to have a voice because fundamentally all of us, all of us really just want to be able to make a difference. Mm -hmm. We just want to have our existence count. Mm -hmm. And if somebody believes that their contribution is through an incident report where they think they have found something that really is, 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 is of importance and that is shut down because it's not really heard, that that can be more profound if it really ties into the identity of or the, the the contribution that that worker feels that they have at that at that organization mm -hmm. it, it can be worse than just blame mm -hmm. it can really start to to hone in on you know well it, as i said 
they can start to feel cheated. They can start to feel um, very, uh, it can go deeper than just, um, you know, oh, this this wasn't read properly kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So what do businesses need to do then, you know, to, to sort of, you know, get, get over this barrier? Because I think, you know, for me, the, you know, the very, you know, even calling something an, an incident reporting, you know, I did a little bit on changing your language recently and, yeah. you know, and it's, you know, and it's all just very, it all just sounds very, very negative, you know, really, sure. I suppose, you know, we want to, we want to create an environment where we're, we're, we're getting people to tell us about the good things that are happening yeah. and the issues. And we're just getting people to just tell us about stuff that's going on. What, what, how do you, how do you do that in practice? Thing? What, you know, what, what is the, what is the way that businesses can, can start to do this? Well, there's a, there's a few things. Um, so, I mean, if you want to put your, your incident reporting system on life support, there might be a few things that you can do there. But if we put that aside for the moment, if you're actually interested in normal work, then be curious about normal work. Hmm. Talk to people. Go out and see the work as it's being done. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if businesses are truly interested in this, then put it on your calendar and invest the time to go and do it. Yeah. I mean, that that's you're going to get better information that way than you would through a reporting system anyway. Yeah. So, um, but if you want to put your life, uh, your, your uh, reporting system on life support, I would go back to the beginning and figure out why did we set this up at all? Mm-hmm. What's the, what, what is the reason for, for having done this? Mm-hmm. So kind of mimic as though you haven't done it yet, but try to rediscover why you did it. Mm-hmm. Because maybe the reasons weren't really legitimate in the first place. You know, there's a possibility that, um, you know, the, these, the incident reporting system was not actually set up to give workers a voice. Mm-hmm. And it was set up for different reasons. And uh, maybe those reasons don't even uh, exist any longer. So, you know, figure out why you have it. And if if you still need to have it, then you're going to have to start working on, um, you know, how you're treating the information that you're getting into it. Mm. And... And then slowly you can start to work on some of the psychological safety and some of the user interface and all of the things that are, are going to be um, helpful. Access to it, who, you know, when people are supposed to report, there's all sorts and there, there's there's a myriad of issues that really have to be addressed. But I think that's a lovely way of looking at it, because I, I would say if I asked most um, most business owners in the UK, why have you got a, an accident or an incident reporting um, process? It will be to comply with some legislation that we've got called Riddle, okay? And that's you know, and so there's a, there's a there's a need for us to tell the the government, the, you know, the HSE about certain things that happen, whether it's a a dangerous occurrence or it's an accident or whatever it may be, and that's the reason that that, that is there. So to comply with Riddle, whereas what you're saying is is and I lo- and I love this is is turn it on its head don't don't have the don't have you know yes an outcome from this process 
may well be that you're going to be able to tell the health and safety executive what they need to know, but have the process in place to give your workers an opportunity to tell you what's going on out there. And I just, I just, I just love that. I think that's a really, really great way of thinking. Well, it's, it's interesting the way that you phrase that. I mean, I don't know your legislation, but our legislation is very similar. You know, um, it, within, I don't even remember the, the numbers anymore, but within N something, <laughs> put in your time uh, staff there, of an occurrence, you have to inform the regulator of something happening. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, if it's an accident, I mean, the last thing you're going to do is go and sit in an incident reporting system and, and, you know, as the fire's burning, you're not going to be sitting there writing up an incident report, mm-hmm. right? Like, if it's an accident, you're going to know anyway. Like, uh, your incident reporting system is probably not how you're going to find out about an accident. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, the incident reporting system is likely the stuff that the regulator is is not interested in it should be stuff that you are interested in in your business because the stuff that the regulator is interested in as you said are the kind of the bigger things the you know which i mean if you're finding out about the existence of an accident through your incident reporting system holy lord that i think there's something some priority things that, that might need to be addressed because mm-hmm. if if there's a catastrophic thing going on surely to god you deal with the catastrophe Mm-hmm. You don't deal with the incident reporting system. Yeah, I suppose it's just how you know big businesses. You know they will, you know they will have a a, a process, a procedure that that tells the the guy on the site to report it to his area manager, and then his area manager will report it to his area director, and then the area director will take it up to the board or wherever it, however it works. You know there'll be some somebody telling the person in the in the communications department if it's a really big organization this has happened so they can deal with the press you know and a lot of businesses have this have this process that goes on you know and it's all sort of written in there but uh but all that's doing is is firefighting you know that's that's what it's doing yes. and and i think you know you know what, what you're what you're alluding to is is well look set your system up to to actually start to give you positive information about what's going on there rather than just reacting to to, to things as they uh as they happen yeah. Again, figure out why you set it up in the first place. Mm-hmm. I mean, if if you set it up because your competitor set one up and they, you know, they're getting a lot of notoriety because they set one up. Well, geez, we need to set one up, too. This is something that Alvison and Spicer talked about um, at, at nauseum in their book, Functional Stupidity, copycatting. Mm-hmm. And they they claim that copycatting in business is no better than teenage girl clothes buying. Mm. I don't know if you've uh, been around teenage girls. I've got, but to, I mean, I've got teenage girls here. <laughs> teenage girls clothes buying. It's popular. I need to have it. It's popular. I'm going to be, I, I'm, I need to fit in. I need, you know, that's, that's the other reason. And I can't be left out. Mm. You know, those are the reasons that motivate teenage clothes buying mm-hmm. has and nothing to do with it fitting them or being environmentally responsible or anything like that. Like those are the reasons, you know, that drive that kind of uh, mentality. And they claim no different in business, mm-hmm. nothing different. So if the reason you're getting an incident reporting system is because, you know, company A did it over there, 
you really want to figure out if if that is suitable for your context mm -hmm. because copycatting is not easy mm -hmm. it is really really hard mm -hmm. and I mean, there are tons and tons of studies on this where the actual success of an initiative in an organization is really hard to track. Mm -hmm. And if you really want to replicate that in a different organization, you have an awful lot of work to do and most people don't do it. Mm. And, and because of that, a lot of the cultural, um, you know, aspects of an initiative working in an organization are never captured. They're never be written down. They might not even be noticed. And, and they are the key to enabling an initiative to work mm -hmm. in an organization. And they might not exist in a different organization. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially why a whole litany of initiatives are you know, come great fanfare when they're introduced, but then die shortly thereafter because they they don't they never did have the the necessary work to do the copycatting. Mm -hmm. You know, may, copycatting can be harder than actually just doing something yourself. Sometimes, you know, <laughs> if it's uh, especially if it's a cultural thing. And that's interesting. So I think you know, I can, you know that, that goes back to a little bit you were saying earlier on about um you know just about the whole the whole sort of safety safety two concept you know you know doing safety two poorly it could be more dangerous than 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 yes. doing doing just doing traditional safety poorly yes. <laughs> you know and uh you know so so it's you know it's really important that people understand that you know and that they you know that they get um you know that they don't just you know they don't just go into these things half-hearted but they actually go in with a real a real knowledge and a real understanding of what it is that they're trying to achieve you know rather than rather than just uh you know trying to make a make a headline and uh make a bit of a splash but really understand what it what it is that you're trying to achieve mm. and it's interesting that you're that you talked about the headline and trying to make a splash because um i wrote an article recently on humility which is the in nearly forgotten virtue. I'm kind of hoping this pandemic might reclaim it a bit. Mm -hmm. But um, I based my article almost exclusively on uh, a different podcast uh, from uh, Pat Lencioni, who talked about, um, well, I'll be just very specific here. You have, you guys have in the UK, you have a, a golfer named Paul Casey. Yep. And he has um, the unfortunate title of being second place in more professional tournaments than anybody else. Mm -hmm. And um, so he was in. He's very, he's very wealthy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he, he was in um, uh, California in August mm -hmm. and he played in a golf tournament and um, he was doing quite well. It looked as though he was going to win this tournament until, I don't know, hole 16 or something like that, where this 27-year-old um, American, I think, um, did a fantastic shot. Mm -hmm. And the reporters came up to Paul Casey and talked to him. 
and um, it, it, this was on a Sunday, and it looked as though um, uh, Pat Lencioni and uh, his uh, co-host were watching the same program at the same time, mm-hmm. where Paul Casey was being asked about, you know, what did he think of this tournament? When he, when it looked as though, you know, the his victory was just going was just snatched away from him, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. He said, "Wow, you know that kid." did a fantastic shot. Mm -hmm. Did you see that? Mm. That was just phenomenal. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, I played very well. I did, you know, this was a good game for me, but that kid did a fantastic shot. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I, I uh, golfed with, and he named the person. I don't remember it off the top of my head. He is such a gentleman to golf with. Mm-hmm. This was such a delightful tournament to be involved with just because I got to inter- interact with him. Mm-hmm. The two of them watching this from their homes on TV were overjoyed. This is humility. Mm-hmm. And it's on TV. Mm-hmm. This is this is great. Uh, and they were going to be reporting their their pod, recording their podcast on humility the next day on Monday. So they came in on Monday and um, they decided, OK, well, we'll find that news clip you know, just before we go and we, we can put it on the podcast and stuff, or at least quote it if we don't have the rights to put it on. And, um, and three people spent 20 minutes trying to find that news clip and they couldn't find it. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, they didn't even quite, maybe it wasn't even recorded. Maybe it was just live and they didn't record it. Like, we don't celebrate humility. We don't mm. see it enough. No, that's right. There's a tangible example mm-hmm. of, you know, something that is worth actually celebrating being virtually invisible unless you happen to see it, mm-hmm. you know, live at the time it was it was uh, diffused. So and it, there's and I have example after example of, of things like this that um, we definitely I mean, for had Paul Casey been extremely upset broken a golf club in front of the the reporter and said god damn it you know i was supposed to win that i would this was my tournament to win that kid stole it from me that would have been front page Mm -hmm. we would have been able to find that that would have made the nightly news mostly Mm. whereas this was just a lazy sunday afternoon broadcast Mm -hmm. because we don't celebrate that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. That's right. And I suppose it doesn't, you know, and, and I really, I really agree with what you're saying there. And it's such an, it's such a, an important trait to have. Um, and, uh, you know, it doesn't get used enough, but you know, only, only last weekend, you know, the thing that was on our news was a, was a young 23 year old go-karter who, um, who, who chucked part of his bumper at somebody going by in the race because he had been knocked out somehow. And he, and, and, you know, and, and that's, and that's what the, that's what the story was. It was, you know, because it because it was so visual and it was so, you know, it was so um, so 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 there you could you'd see it. And I suppose, you know, just relating it back to health and safety. You know, that's what happens in health and safety, isn't it? You know, you know, people get get totally totally clawed in and and, and hung up on the things that can be seen, and and don't spend enough time looking at the things that that, that aren't seen. You know, they'll they'll look at the guards missing. They'll look at the holes in the walkway. They'll look at the machinery that uh, that's not quite right. Yet they won't look at the 
the people and the way that people work and behave and act in the workplace. And that's where the real gold is. You know, that is where the, you know, that is where, that is where the, the profitability is. That's where the, the, the nice environment is, you know, the, the, you know, the people wanting to come to work because, because you've created something that's actually people can be proud of, you know? Yeah. So, you know, that's so, that's so, you know, having that, 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 you know, you, you mentioned the humility, you know, I know you wanted to talk a bit about vulnerability as well, you know, being vulnerable. I think it's just so, it's just so important, you know, it's just so important. You know, so I'd, I'd like to attack uh, vulnerability in two different frames, if I could. Yeah. So, the vulnerability that you just described is is the one I think that I you know is kind of getting a lot more notoriety now. We have people mm-hmm. like Rosa Carrillo and Clive Lloyd and Brene Brown. I think has kind of commercialized vulnerability as a as a as a way to. I mean, her TED talk is absolutely stunning. You know the mm-hmm. the um, the way that vulnerability can be a strength and that. I mean, Pat Lencioni has talked about vulnerability-based trust. And mm-hmm. it's so funny because when I uh, talked about it to my daughter, vulnerability-based trust, she immediately thought about, you know, people um, being caught by people behind them, you know, standing straight and then falling back and trusting the person behind you. And um, Pat Lencioni calls that falling out of trees kind of stuff. And he says, no, 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 that's not what I'm talking about. I am talking about what you were alluding to, Colin, the ability to be humble, Mm. the ability to realize that everybody makes mistakes, Mm. the ability to say that I'm sorry, the ability to recognize I was wrong and you were right, and and Mm. the ability to to recognize that um, we all have strengths and that we need to work collaboratively collaboratively together to get to a to get to something better mm-hmm. as opposed to just hoarding everything and taking credit for everything ourselves kind of thing mm-hmm. there's there's a there's a whole mountain of people out there now trying to espouse espouse this message of vulnerability yeah. but i just want to talk about another side of vulnerability because just uh yesterday i was on the world um health and safety council um uh web you know conference mm-hmm. it was uh so the world health and safety thing was supposed to be in toronto in september um while i was doing my phd it was in russia and i can remember one of my um uh one of my uh uh members saying that uh tanya you're going to have to present at the world health and safety council and i'm like how the hell am i going to get to russia Mm-hmm. But I can get to Toronto. <laughs> so <laughs> I uh, had signed up uh, for that, but I obviously nothing. And here, the head of the International Labor Organization and like a whole bunch of very high level people uh, from the UN kind of thing talking about um, what they how they're responding to COVID. And I just like to talk a little bit about how often I heard the word vulnerable workers. I mean, this whole pandemic has really brought to light a lot of the vulnerable workers, the ones that, you know, are not celebrated in our society, the, you Mm -hmm. know, a lot of the cleaners, the 
the shelf stalkers, the yep. truck drivers, all of these people. So a couple of things there. When it, when vulnerable is used in the workplace, often we, we say low skilled, mm. low skilled work. Mm -hmm. A lot of people were pushing back on that at this conference saying, no, it's not necessarily low skilled. It's low paid. Yeah. That's what you mean to say. Mm -hmm. There is likely a lot of skill in doing the work that they're doing. Mm -hmm. In fact, I had uh, watched um, a show on Deutsche Welle a little while ago. Um, uh, so Deutsche Welle, if you don't know, it's uh, you can watch it in English. So that's lovely for me. And mm -hmm. uh, they had shown this competition that happens annually of cleaners. And now, of course, this is becoming a big deal. But mm -hmm. it's always happened. And so what they do is they take them into concert halls and things and they get them to clean lights up in the in the main theater and they get them to do ceiling fans and they and and things like this and they evaluate them on their cleaning expertise and you know some of these are people who are inheriting their parents businesses and they want to make their 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 parents proud that they were are able to carry on the family tradition and things like this mm -hmm. it's low paid it's not low skilled work mm. number one number two um Vulnerable. So I learned a lot about this in, in population health, like the vulnerable in our society, and we have to be very attentive to the vulnerable in our society. But it started to be used as a label. Mm -hmm. it, it started to be used as a way to identify groups of people. Instead of recognizing that vulnerability is not an inbred property. This is a transient property that people may have. Mm -hmm. And the problem with, uh, with continually using vulnerable for, to refer to people in our society or, or to uh, various groups of workers is that it can start to, start to perpetuate an environment of learned helplessness, mm. kind of like we were talking about before, about the, the worker who tried to be able to raise something to somebody who might listen and was shut down. The more that people believe that they are not of worth being called vulnerable, being called low skilled, the more they're going to believe it and internalize it. And that's gonna be really hard to fight once they start to internalize that kind of messaging. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to get them to, to get out of it. Mm -hmm. they, I mean, there are ways, but I mean, it, it's a lot harder than not getting them there in the first place. Mm -hmm. And um, my, uh, Michael Sandel had just written a book on the tyranny of merit. And uh, I wrote a, an article on meritocracy. Michael Young actually was from the UK who, who founded the term, right? He was mm -hmm. a sociologist and he founded the term meritocracy mm -hmm. as a warning. And I am so um, lucky that the uh, internet um, has some archives and Tony Blair had used meritocracy as a positive 
mm-hmm. in some public speech. And Michael Young, still alive at the time, reacted strongly to that. Mm-hmm. And I was able to use his article on um, on how meritocracy has gone the wrong way. Mm-hmm. And um, that vulnerable people are only vulnerable because of our perspective. Mm. And it's really important to realize that um, the more that we propagate that kind of perspective, um, the more damage it can cause. I think that's a really, again, really, really valid point that you're raising there. And I think there's, you know, there are an awful lot of people in, in industry that, that judge the skill levels of people by how much they're paid and not by how skillful the job is. And, you know, and I can just think, you know, again, I mentioned earlier on, I'm in the quarrying industry, and I know that, uh, you know, operating an excavator well is, is, is an amazing, it's amazing to see somebody doing it well. I, there's plenty of people that can do it poorly, but when you see somebody do it really well, you know, it's, 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 it's amazing, you know, the, the way that they can, they can move the material around and, and the finish that they can put onto slopes and things like that is absolutely, you know, almost artistic. And, um, and, you know, but, but, but they aren't, they aren't judged like that. They aren't looked like that. They're just looked as people that are just moving, moving earth, moving, moving soil, moving aggregates, whatever it may be. And I think, you know, if businesses, if business owners, you know, you know, started to look at their staff in a different way and started to, to consider the skills that were needed to do the jobs, like operating the plant, operating the equipment, you know, then I think it, uh, you know, I think it it would put a different a different perspective, and I think a lot of it is about the perspective that you have, put a different perspective on how you and how you then engage with those people. Yes, uh, you know, and that's uh, and how they engage with you, and how yes. they engage with you. Fantastic. Um, there's a there's t- I want to chuck a term at you that you again that you mentioned to me, um, and it's this um embracing the red and challenging the green. Okay, you know, and I've, I've 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 read it in a couple of books before, but I'd really love to hear what you know. What what do you what do you take from that? What do you mean by that? And you know, what what do people need to what do people need to do in in reality to 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 be really successful at doing it? Okay, so there's again, there's two aspects to this that I like to raise. So one is the basically the traditional way that I think that this was raised. Um, I learned about this from a podcast from an HSE advisor in Qatar. And I found it very odd that I'm dri- deriving inspiration from Qatar of all places, you know, like, mm-hmm. but they, but you know, he, this, the senior leader was talking about. He'd rather know about the problems when they're small rather than uh, be surprised by a catastrophe. Mm-hmm. And he'd, he's very skeptical, skeptical of getting good news all the time mm. because he rightly believes that people might be telling him what he wants to hear, mm-hmm. what they think he wants to hear. Mm-hmm. as opposed to what he really needs to know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at, I mean, a, a really good example of this was um, Alan Mulally, who um, very few people know, but he is one of these humble leaders who really should be celebrated. Mm-hmm. 
he took over Ford during the financial crisis or just before the financial crisis. And Ford didn't take a government handout. And I'm really, I didn't know that. So I only learned this recently under his leadership. And um, so he talked about being at, um, you know, a board, uh, an initial meeting with his direct reports around the world, um, different time zones and everything, where they were looking through their key performance indicators. Now, Ford, in his words, was hemorrhaging money mm -hmm. at the time. And they were going through their key performance indicators and everything was lovely. Everything was absolutely perfect. There, you know, everything was in the green. And he said, really, you're going to have to explain this to me because we are literally losing money every second we're talking here. And you're telling me that there are no problems anywhere. Mm -hmm. And he acknowledges that one guy from Oshawa said, Oshawa, Ontario, had said, well, actually, we're not going to be able to make the delivery date for uh, some of the trucks because one of the the hitches is not working on on you know the uh, on the pickup truck. This happened over time, okay? So I'm not. This isn't just yeah. one meeting. This happened yeah. over months. But um, uh, Alan Mulally says that the reaction of the people in the room. It was as if he had a firing squad outside the door. And, you know, as soon as that guy said that, that he, he would have opened the door and said, ready, aim, fire, kill that guy right now. Mm. Like the, it was so perceptible to him that it was impossible to tell him what he needed to know. Mm -hmm. So eventually this guy from Oshawa sat beside him at, at one of these meetings which stunned everybody. Oh my God, he's the enemy. How could you possibly? And then some guy from Ohio, maybe, um, at, a, at a later meeting said, well, actually, we have that part that could help you. You know, we could, I could ship to you that part. So he started to get them to realize that they are actually one company. Mm -hmm. And they, they have to swim, they have to row the boat in the same direction together. They are not competing against each other. Mm -hmm. They are all in the same boat. And they've got to start cooperating instead of competing against each other. Mm -hmm. And that was, you know, a main thing about embracing the red and challenging the green. It was when... Al Malali started to push back on the green everywhere on the dashboard and start, no, there's, this isn't possible. <laughs> so mm -hmm. um, wanted to know more about that. And but I think, you know, a, probably what happened in that business is they, they may have been very good at the things that they were measuring. They were just measuring the wrong things. <laughs> and that, well, he, he was actually uh, suggesting that even in the things that they were measuring, they were so scared to tell the truth, right? Yeah. That even mm -hmm. in the things that they were measuring, they mm -hmm. weren't um, being uh, honest about it. Mm -hmm. And it's some. Um, and, and I don't discount that you're right. That yeah. uh, you know, mm -hmm. I you know, across the board, we measure things that are easy. We measure things that are accessible. The things that you know are not taxing, yeah. uh, which are not necessarily the things that need to be measured. They need so. to be measured. No, that's right.
So I think, you know, I think, you know, okay, you know, if, if, if organizations, if businesses want to have processes that, that develop rag reports, red, amber, green reports, then, then that's fine, but just don't, don't sit on your laurels if everything's in the green. You know, you've got to look. You've got to look at. You've got to look Absolutely. at the bigger picture, haven't you? You know, and you've got to. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, I you know be more suspicious of green because, as I said, mm-hmm. you might be getting information that your direct reports think you might want to be hearing, as opposed mm-hmm. to the information that you need to hear. Mm-hmm. So you know, be more suspicious. Push back a bit on the information that you're getting. Mm-hmm. You know especially the numbers yeah. if, if as as a you know an executive board if they're bringing, being presented a whole bunch of charts and numbers they really should understand how those numbers came to be mm-hmm. they should be asking their you know pushing down and asking how did you get these numbers mm. And, and having a very good understanding of how those numbers got to be on those charts before ever using those numbers in a decision. Yeah. Using numbers in a decision that you do not understand their origin is really perilous. Mm-hmm. And, and it, you know, it, it, it's, it's not right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, 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 I really, really get that. So where um where, where do you can think? I, can sorry. I give you one more yeah, cool. one more yeah, aspect yeah, yeah, cool. of embrace the red and challenging the green? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. This one is the harder one. Okay. So, um, this is is the stuff that Pat Lencioni is is espousing. Nobody is good at this. Some people are better at it than others. Mm-hmm. This is where this is on interpersonal relationships. So this is where, well, maybe, maybe I'll phrase it a little differently. So I'll take it out of the safety uh, realm for a second. Um, so if we get to the societal things that we're dealing with right now, so racism has come, you know, forefront everywhere mm-hmm. and there's systemic racism and things like this. But there's a difference between not racism Sorry, I've just lost just lost the sound there. Can you say that again? There's a difference between what? Between being not racist mm-hmm. and being anti-racist. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, the best example I have of this is um, something that I had read of a female, a black female faculty member who was going to a talk. And before a talk, there's usually some social thing with coffee and, you know, uh, some treats and things. And um, somebody, I think it was a white male colleague, had said something about her, about her race kind of thing, uh, that shouldn't have been said. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, um, like, he probably didn't know that she heard it, but she was in her group of probably female colleagues and they all, you know, their eyes widened, they all stopped talking, and they all heard it. And they all, you know, again, as teenage girls do, they all went to the bathroom. Hmm. And in the bathroom, they talked about 
oh, how horrid that was. How dare he say that? How awful of him to say that. So this, I think most of us are like this. Most of us agree that, uh, you know, racist comments are bad and systemic racism is wrong and all this kind of thing. But we are not racist. We talk about it in in the bathroom. You know, we talk about it. We, we agree about it, you know, just in the shower kind of thing. And it, it's all a private kind of thing. Anti-racist is actually calling out the racism as it's happening mm. and saying to the person that was an inappropriate comment. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're, uh, you know, family gatherings that, you know, saying to Uncle Joe, that was an inappropriate comment. Mm. That is what is actually anti- anti-racist. Mm-hmm. And this is where Embrace the Red Challenge the Green takes on a very different flavor because Pat Lencioni advocates leaning into the danger mm-hmm. where you make sure. That, and the, the thing is, the goal is to be able to get things better. Yep. That's the whole point. And when somebody is corrected on their behavior, you know, there's a whole there's there's a whole lot of things that have to come with that. Um, but the goal is to make things better and to make that person a better person. Hmm. And it is important that that be the mindset that is taken. So in order to be able to embrace the red and challenge the green at an interpersonal level, you want to be able to call out inappropriate behavior at the time in a respectful way, Hmm. in a way that, again, is helping that person become a better person. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the one of the examples I can give is uh, uh, Pat Lencioni, one of his people, uh, when he walked into the office, um, everybody was on edge for about 10 minutes because he didn't come into the office all that often. He was just a, a, a he was a remote employee. He only visited every once in a while. And every time he walked in for about 10 minutes, people were on edge. And and Pat Lencioni, I know all this because he talks about it on his podcast. Uh, he he called this employee in and said, you know. I don't know if you noticed, but for the first 10 minutes, when you walk in, everybody's on edge here. Mm-hmm. Like what's going on? And that, that conversation allowed this employee to pour out a whole bucket load of stuff that mm-hmm. he was dealing with mm-hmm. that would never have been able to be um, unleashed kind of thing, unless that conversation had been, uh, had mm-hmm. like the thing is, people. I mean, Susan David talks about this all the time. Bottling your emotions, it's not helpful. Mm-hmm. Pat Lencioni talks all the time about getting this out early. It's funny because uh, Pat Lencioni has hired some younger people, and in their meetings, because they practice organizational health themselves, and they teach organ 
they, they, that is their business organizational health. They have to check in with these younger employees because they'll say things like, they're going through, going through a meeting, well, Pat, you're wrong about this. Pat owns the company. Pat, I think you're wrong about that. And they're like, huh, what did you do? You just told them you're wrong? You can't do that. And, and they have to check in with these younger people. Did you realize what just happened there? Mm-hmm. Like, sorry, like we have to explain this to you. We can tell the owner that he's wrong mm-hmm. because we have developed this, this relationship here where this is how this works here. Mm-hmm. Because if we don't tell him that he's wrong, then it could be that we have information that he doesn't have, or maybe we we don't understand something that he does and he needs to explain it to us. Mm-hmm. And we need to catch this early as opposed to let this build and build and build and build and build and then have it explode in some kind of meeting four weeks down the road when we should have said something early. Mm-hmm. That's a whole other thing of embracing the red and challenging the green. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think, you know, again, you know, my experience in business is um is you often find that the that the people, the people right at the top of the business are are actually really comfortable to be challenged, you know, because because they they've got an understanding that that actually helps them. But as you go down the management structure, so so the middle management, it becomes a little bit harder for them because they're getting pressures from all different ways. And so you know, and that can often be that can often be where sometimes the messages that are coming out from the from the top of the business get get changed, get diluted because because that person in the middle doesn't like doesn't like being challenged as much, and and it's and it's quite difficult for them to for them to to change their change the way that there's almost been expected. You know, middle managers have been expected to work in certain ways in businesses for a lot of years. And it's and it can be very very difficult to to change that thinking, but uh, hey, it but can. But I but I mean I think we're about, seeing a, a a tidal wave of change now. Mm. I mean it's it's funny. Um, I had you know on that humility article, I somebody was brave enough to say, well, that they were trained that humility was a weakness. Mm. Uh, they commented that on LinkedIn, and I'm like, you know, good on you for saying that because yeah, you know that's I I don't doubt it. Mm-hmm. I don't doubt that you were trying that humility was a weakness. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, that was wrong. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're, we're, we're now in, a, in an era where we can a- admit that that was wrong. And it's not to say that, you know, maybe we had to go through that era of, realize, of, of, of teaching that humility is a weakness and that, you know, money is everything and that, um, you know, only the, the shareholders count and all this kind of thing. But as as science is allowed to progress, as it learns more things, I think our societies and our businesses are allowed to progress as they learn more things. Mm -hmm. And I think we are now learning um, uh, that this isn't this isn't the way that we should be running our businesses. Mm -hmm. There is a different way to do this. Mm -hmm. And. uh, there, there was a fantastic documentary that was actually promoted by a business school. So I am just overjoyed that a business school is actually teaching this kind of stuff. And it's called Fishing with Dynamite. And they're, ta- they're talking about how businesses, um, since, and, and they trace through the whole history, um, you know, have uh, shareholder value has been the only thing that has counted 
Mm-hmm. But that era has come to an end. Mm. We are now in an era where we need to start taking into account a whole a whole bunch of stakeholders. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, suppliers, the environment, our employees, our communities. Like uh, there are more players here than just the shareholders. I think that's good. And it's, uh, and it's not at the expense of the shareholders, but it's as not well as. Not at the expense of the shareholders. No, that's it's, right. It's, it's as well as. because uh, As well as. Yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. No, that's... But you do have to realize that um, it might, this is long game stuff that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was just listening to a podcast that was talking principally about loss aversion. We don't talk about loss aversion nearly enough. Loss aversion is huge. We say that people can't adjust to change. That's not true. We adjust to change all the time. Mm. Um, you know, there are tons of examples. Look at, look at this pandemic. Like we can adjust to change. It's loss. It's loss that we have a problem with. Mm-hmm. Loss aversion is massive. Mm-hmm. And a spoonful of sugar, sugar does help the medicine go down. Mm-hmm. The more that we can try to associate the unpleasant with the pleasant the better off we're going to be like it's 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 going to have to be um important to realize that you know delayed gratification that that fundamental marshmallow experiment it wasn't as though the the kids who didn't eat the marshmallow just sat there they played games, they used their imagination, they they did things, right? There was this instant gratification that they were satisfying in order to be able to take part in the delayed gratification later. Mm-hmm. And that is something that I don't think we pay nearly enough attention to. Delayed gratification is hard and mm-hmm. it's only possible when you satisfy the, the, the need for instant gratification. Um, simultaneously and you can do that mm-hmm. like dan Ariely talked about taking interferon medication which was absolutely awful you know fever diarrhea vomiting headaches that they get awful but he made sure to take that medication while watching a good movie he associated those two things together mm-hmm. another woman had talked about um needing to read a whole bunch of um, academic literature for grad school, but actually wanting to read uh, more trashy novels. So what she did was she associated um, exercise with the trashy novels. Mm -hmm. And she actually looked forward to going to the gym, something she otherwise didn't want to do, um, with wanting to find out what happened in the next chapter. So, you know, we we have to start setting up these associations because loss aversion is huge and we don't realize it. So what sort of things should businesses uh, uh, join then? What's, uh, you know, how, how would a business do that? Well, it, it depends on what loss they're trying to deal with. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you have to do some work to, to figure this stuff out. Yeah. But once once you realize that there is a loss aversion going on, I mean, it's, it's almost primal that's uh, that this loss aversion. We anchoring is so strong. We have to start using that in our ability to be able to enable change. Mm-hmm. So, 
there's, I mean, there's, there's, uh, if it's on an initiative, you would look at the specifics of the initiative. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if it's a cultural thing, you might want to start thinking about what types of things people actually value in, in their work, uh, in order to be able to not feel as though they're going to lose something in going to something else. You, mm-hmm. you really have to tune into the what's in it for me mm-hmm. in order to be able to get things going. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think that's, uh, you know, that's, that goes back to, to, to sales and, Absolutely. you know, and, and that's ultimately from a, you know, from a health and safety perspective, I suppose that's what we're, we, you know, we're, we're salespeople, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to, we're trying to sell a safe room working place, you know, and, the workplace, and that's what we're trying to do. Tanya, this has been, this has been really, really, really fascinating. How, um, how can, how can people get hold of you then? What, um, you know, what's the best, if somebody wanted to sort of get hold of you, what's the best way for them to do that? So um, I'm on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. So uh, Tanya Hewitt, I, um, I have a website, uh, www.beyondsafetycompliance.ca. Mm-hmm. And from there, I have my my email, Tanya at beyondsafetycompliance.ca. And I have my phone number there as well. So Okay. That's uh, that's wonderful. I really appreciate, really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you ever so much. Well, this is delightful, Colin. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show, Tanya. It was absolutely lovely chatting with yourself. Uh, and then there was just so much, you know, so much gold, I think, in there. Um, I really love what you spoke about, about your sort of the whole the whole concept of, you know, your sort of your near hit, your near miss reporting pro- process, you know, and really asking that question, you know, why do you, why do you want to do it? You know, what is it that you're trying to gain out of uh, out of any program that is uh, that is trying to get uh, people to, you know, engage more? And I think, you know, I love the bit where you're saying about that. Let's give people a voice. It's another opportunity for giving the people at the sharp end of the business a voice. And I think also, you know, you know, when we're talking about uh, how we are rolling out health and safety into the into the workplace, you know, and the and the initiatives and the ideas, you know, don't overload on initiatives. You know, keep it uh, you know, just a, a small number of really really well done activities is much better than trying to trying to deliver loads and loads of uh, things into the workplace, but but have a real understanding, have a real passion, have a real belief about what it is that you're trying to achieve and what you're trying to deliver. And if you can uh, you can do that, then then you're going to be really successful. Hey, look, I really hope that we can get you back on the show again in uh, in the new year. Um, and, uh, you know, thank you again for, uh, for spending time on the Interesting Health and Safety podcast. Bye-bye for now.